as Shavuz is approaching, we'll uh, have uh, every day a little part of Megillah's Rus, which is a tradition in some communities to read on Shavuz. And uh, we hope we'll finish most of it, at least a big part of it, before Yontav. So the Sefer, the, the Sefer Megillah's Rus, first of all, was written by Shmuel Anavi. Shmuel Anavi wrote the Sefer Shmuel only up to his death, which is at the end of Shmuel Aleph. After that, Shmuel Beis and a small part of Shmuel Aleph was written according to the Gemara by God and Nasan Anavi. They finished off the Sefer Shmuel Beis. Um, Shmuel Anavi also wrote the Sefer Shaftim, the period of the judges, which was before him, before his time. And he also wrote the Sefer Rus, Megillah's Rus, which took place during the time, the period of the judges. Why did he write this book, which is a particular story about a particular family? Is because Chazal tell us several reasons. One reason is mentioned because it teaches us about Chasadim. The Medrash says there are no laws, no halachas written in this book. There's no Torah that's being taught in this book. But it's a book that teaches us the greatness of Gemilus Chasadim. What happens when you're kind to other people. And Rus showed a, an example of sacrifice. She was willing to sacrifice her background and her royal family uh, environment only to be kind and accompany uh, the poor, lonely Nomi who was left bereft of her husband and her sons. And she was all alone and poor. So this shows the kindness, and the kindness was reciprocated by Boyaz that he married her. So this is one interpretation. Another interpretation is that uh, David HaMelech was questioned by some of his contemporaries. His legitimacy was, con- was questioned because he came from Ruth, who came from the, from the Moabites, from the Moavim, and the Torah tells us that a, an Ammonian Ma'avi, even if they convert, they cannot marry Jews because of the things they did to the Jewish people in the desert. So there was a big question whether David the Melech is even legitimate to marry Jews, to be married into the Jewish community, let alone to be a leader. And this question uh, became intensified when Shaul Melech saw the young David who became a rising star after he defeated Goliath and he became a big uh, general in the army of Shaul and he became very popular with the, with the masses and um, Shaul Amela became very threatened and he started asking questions about the background of David Amelech and there was a, a enemy of David, Doig, who was supposed to be a big scholar and a head of a Sanhedrin but he, he was jealous of David because David's scholarship uh, irritated him. And Doig um, tried to, on a number of occasions, have David killed. And in this case, he uh, told Shaul Amelech that David Amelech was not from a legitimate background. And um, the Gemarion Yevamus gives great, long, detailed discussion uh, of the, the, the conversation that went on between Shaul Amelech and Doig. And Hadoyek argued compellingly um, that 
that which is not legitimate. Because the argument was whether women, the women, the female members of the Moabites are an exception. When the Torah says Moabites cannot be included and married into the Jewish communities, it's only talking about the male members because the Torah gives a reason there. The Torah says the reason why the Moabites should be rejected and banned for marrying Jews is because when the Jews traveled through the desert in the past, uh, the Moabite nation, um, they didn't go out and greet us with bread and water. They, they knew that we were starving, we were in need of food and help, and they didn't. So one argument is that uh, these are the, men, the men are the ones who are supposed to do this. So it's the men that were banished from the Jewish community because they didn't bring bread and water to the Jewish people in the desert. But the women, that's not their thing to do. So therefore, women are welcome to join the Jewish people. Therefore, Ruth, Ruth is legitimate and David the Melech is legitimate. But the Doig argued, well, well, the woman can go and greet the woman. I mean, maybe it's not appropriate for women to go and bring bread and water to the men, but um, they should uh, bring to the woman. And, and and, and everybody was silent. In the Beis Medrash, in the Yeshiva, in the Academy, uh, nobody had a response to Doig's argument, and David's reputation, or David's legitimacy, was at that moment in serious danger. Until uh, one of the members of the Beis Medrash, of the Academy, Asoil, um, as the said, he stuck a sword in the ground and he cr- called out, Mukublani, I have a tradition from the best, the best din of Shmuel Navi. That when it says that a Moabite cannot marry a, a Jew, it's only talking about the man and not the woman, and therefore David is legitimate, and that settled it. We'll speak more about it later because Boaz did marry her, and Boaz himself was the head of the Sanhedrin in his day. We're talking about five generations earlier. How can they have a question about? Dovah's legitimacy five generations later, didn't Boaz know the halacha about a Moabite woman, um, whether she's permitted to marry a Jew or not? And we see he married her. So this is another question we'll discuss later. So one of the reasons Shmuel Navi wrote the Sefer Rus is to show that Boaz married Rus, and Boaz the head of Sanhedrin, and that David is legitimate because Boaz established the halacha that the male members are the only ones that are banned from marrying Jews, but the females are permitted. Okay, this is the other reason. Um, what is the reason we read it before Shavuos? Some some opinions are because Shavuos is the Yotzad of David HaMelech, and, we, and so we read Rus to celebrate David's legacy and his uh, background. Um, another opinion is that when we went to Matan Torah by Shavuos, we also were converted in a way. We had a, we had a Torah. Till then, we weren't obligated to keep mitzvahs. Same thing as a ger who didn't have a mitzvah, but now when he converts, he becomes a ger. And one other thing that's mentioned in the Midrashim that we learn from Rus how to connect with Torah. That in order for somebody to learn Torah, we come to Har Sinai and we want to connect with with this special divine gift that Hashem gave every single Jew, the Torah, how do you make sure that the Torah is truly effective in our lives? And we learn it from Rus. The only way is to be sacrificing all our attachments to the material world. 
to be willing to give up all the comforts that our bodies so much crave for, this is the only way you can Torah can really bond with a person. We look, we see from Rus. Rus, in order to become Jewish and connect with Torah, she had to give up the comforts of the palace in which she came from. She was a princess. According to one Medrash, she was, Chazal say that he, she was the daughter of Eglon, the king of Mayav. According to some opinions, she was the granddaughter of Mayav. Uh, both Ruth and Arpa were both sisters, and they were granddaughters of Mayav, of, of, of Eglon. And according to Teresus and Herius, it doesn't mean literally the granddaughters. They lived a little much later, but they were, they were descendants of Eglon. They came from a royal family. And she gave all of that up to live a a life of poverty and just to be with her mother while she can convert to Yiddishkeit. And this is a lesson for all of us. If we're going, we're heading towards Matan Torah, we have to be willing to um, relinquish uh, our desires and our, our attachments to the material comforts of life uh, before we can expect Torah to have a big influence on our lives. Okay, so these are the reasons why we read for Shavuos. Now let's talk about the name Rus before we start the text. What is the name? Um, first of all, uh, the name Rus. Uh, Chazal tells us Rus is, uh, is from the word Sherivahu. She had a son, a great-grandson, David, who satiated God with praises in the book of Tehillim. So Rus comes from the word Rivahu. Uh, we'll talk more later about it. Now there's a big question whether that name came to her from her parents, natural parents, biological parents, before she became Jewish, or this was a name that was given to her after conversion. And um, <clears throat> according to Chazal, certain midrashim, um, the Marsha says, the Marsha actually says this in the Baba Basra that she had this name from her parents. So how come Chazal interpret this name? Rus means Sherivahu. It's because she had a son, a great grandson, David that poured so much praises upon God, it's from that word, that Hebrew word, Rivohu. Her parents weren't Hebrew-speaking people. They were Moabites. No, it's made, then we must say that even though the parents didn't know about it, but they thought of the right name that alluded to this concept. But uh, in some, in the Zoya Chodash, in other Midrashim, it says that she got that name after she converted before she converted, she had a different name, a Moabite name. And the Rashbats even says that the name Rus, which is spelled Reish Vav Sof, which is Tov Reish Vav, which is 606, is the reason she got this name is because when she converted, she added on six, uh, um, 606 mitzvahs to the already pre-existing mitzvahs she had. As, as a Ben Noyach, she had seven mitzvahs of Ben Noyach, and there's 613 together. So on top of that, she added on 606 more mitzvahs, making it together 613, and that's why her name Rus. Just want to say one last thing uh, before we start really the text, or maybe two more things. Um, the Bar Tanura, a famous commentator on the Mishnah, classic, uh, wrote a commentary on. He wrote a commentary on the uh, on the Sefer Rus, and in his commentary, um, he takes the whole story of Rus, 
and turns it into an allegorical text. It's all about Hashem and the Jewish people going into Golas. And this is the entire text. It's similar to what the Ramah, the famous Ramah, whose Yotzad was just now in Lag Boimer, wrote also Sefer Mechir Yain on the Sefer Esther, on the book of Esther. And he interpreted the entire Sefer about Hashem and the Jewish people. Very deep stuff. He analyzes every detail in the entire book of Esther and, and sees in it a, a drama that, that describes the, the, the fluctuations in our relationship with Hashem. Haman, Achashverus, it's all of referring to deeper spiritual ideas. And the Batanuah did the same with the Sefer, with the Megillah's Rus. And just to give you a taste of the first Pasuk, when it says, when the judges judge, judgment is a sign of concealment, a darkness. It starts off saying that there was a time of darkness and gullus. And that's why there is a famine. And he went to base Lechem. The source of all bread and all livelihood comes from Hashem. Right? And he went to live where? In the fields of Moyav. In other words, what says in, in Svarim, in Tanya, in Kabbalah, Sidis, that when Jews go into Golos, the Shekhinah also ends up traveling into Golos, into Moab, the place of clip of evil. Shekhinah uh, in Mohem, right? The Shekhinah is always with the Jewish people. And it's a sad time because the Shekhinah is forced to nurture and give life to a world that's so completely um, rebellious and resistant to godliness. means God, he, God is the king, and Ishtoi, his wife, is Naomi, Naomi is Neimus, this is the Jewish people whose actions are always sweet. But here they start doing golas, and that's why this judgment, because the Shechina is dragged into golas. It's a fascinating bit, if you have time to read it, Go ahead, Okay. <clears throat> and one last thing, there's a fascinating medrash that says that all of the psukim of Megillah's Rus start with a vav, with the exception of eight psukim. There are eight psukim that don't start with a vav. And the hint is that the um, the the eight, the, the it's it's eighty five psukim that start with vav and eight don't. It says the eight that start with vav is a the gematria of uh, Yeshaya. Sorry, let me correct myself. Eighty five psukim, which is practically the whole Megillah's Rus, with the exception of the eight psukim that start with a vav, and that is the gematria of Boyaz. 85 times 6, Vav, is the gematria of Bayaz. And the 8 psukim that don't begin with, uh, with a Vav begin with a different letter. And if you take the letters, well, there's a letter, um, there's a Yud, Yitin Hashem Lachem Amtsena Menucha, Shevna Benaisai, Halehenta Saberna Baal Shatomus. You'll see that the letters that these psukim begin with is um, is the Rosh Tevis of the name Yeshaya Beis Alav Lamed. Yeshaya is the name of the Shloha Kodesh. And Beis Alav Lamed is Ben Avram Levi. The father of the Shloha Kodesh was Avram. He was a Levi. And it says in Seder Adoiris from some Mekubal that the Shloha Kodesh was the Gilgul, the incarnation, 
the incarnation of uh, Rus, the Nisham of Rus. Okay, these are Kabbalah stuff. Now, uh, let's start at the beginning. It was during the time when the judges judged. Let's first read the whole passage. There was a hunger, a famine in the land. And a man went from the house of Lechem, from Beis Lechem, sorry, from Beis Lechem in the section of Yehuda, the tribe of Yehuda. Beis Lechem is a city. And he went to live in the fields of Mayav. What means the fields? Seems like in a rural area outside the city. He and his wife and his two sons. So let's start with Vayahi. So we know it was the, the time of the judges, when the, when the judges judged. Now Chazal tells us Vayahi, whenever it says Vayahi, it's a Loshen Tsar. That means some trouble is coming. Vayahi b'meyach what was the trouble? Achashverosh uh, had a party and he took the clay based on Mikdash, uh, all the vessels of the temple, and used it in the party. And then Haman came. So we know what the Vahi is. What is the trouble here? Asked Chazal. Well, you could say, well, the famine. It says right after that, Vahirov. So why? what's the question? Chazal asked, what is Vahi? Vahi, what's the trouble that this story contains? It's written right after that. The answer is that the Chazal were troubled because it says twice Vahi. Vahi It was in the days of the when the judges judged, and then it says again Vahi Rav. So for the famine, he already says once Vahi. What is the other Vahi? And uh, <coughs> Chazal tell us that it was a time when the when people when the judges were judged by the people. That's why it says Shvoita Shaftim. It's a little bit redundant. Shvoita, what does it say? It was in the days of the judges. What means Shvoita Shaftim? When the judges judged? I mean, say the days of the, of the judges. So the answer is that it's a, the, the, the Megillah Rus. The Megillah Rus is telling us that the time that this story takes place is a very difficult and challenging time in Israel. It's a time when the people were misbehaving. They did not trust their leaders. They were judging the leaders. But Chazal tells us it's, it worked both ways. Not only did they judge their leaders, the leaders were worthy of judgment. The only thing is that the people weren't the ones who were the right, the right ones to judge and criticize the leaders. As the Gemara, the Gemara says that when a judge would tell a Jew to do something, he would say, Toil keire binenecha. Take that uh, beam from between your eyes. It's a way, it's an expression saying, you yourself have problems. Why are you telling me what to do? So this is a a common response, was a common response. People were judging the judges. So now we can understand better that there was a famine. Chazal say a famine was a double famine. Not only was there a famine in a physical and material sense, there was also a spiritual dearth at that time in Israel. So we'll understand a little later why Elimelech was punished based on this medrash. <clears throat> so, Vayahi. Vayahi is Loshan Tsar. Now it's interesting that the, um, the Al-Sheikh HaKadosh has a commentary on the Begilas um, Rus called Sheirish Yishai. The root of Yishai, the father of David. So like we said before, that the whole purpose of writing this book was to point out 
the uh, the yichus of David Melach that he, he was legitimate. So he named the commentary Shirish Yishai, the the commentary, the the the, the roots of, of Yishai, the father of David. And he explains that in essence, Vayahi is Lashon Tzav. Why is that so? He just explains what Chazal means. They say Vayahi is always Tzav because Vay, Vay is, is is you know Oy Vay. So it's 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 a it's a cry of of pain. But Chazal also tell us that Vahoya, Whenever it says Vahoya, it will be, or it was, uh, is a Lashon Simcha. That means something happy is going to happen. So Vay is Vahoya. Loshen Simcha. So he says like this, just like Vai, Vayahi. The first two letters of Vayahi um, uh, implies a cry of pain. Uh, we find in Chazal that Vah, Vav Hey, there's a medrash is a, is a loshen of Simcha. I guess in the time of, of Chazal, in time of the Tanoim Amoraim, Vah is a loshen Simcha, and there's actually a medrash. The medrash points out um, whenever. Um, uh, whenever there's a king that comes, uh, begins to rule, and the, the, the Tanakh introduces the king, uh, when it's a happy king, uh, and he was sitting on the throne. It's a, it's a simcha. When he introduces David Amelach, it says, but with other kings, it uses a very different language. And, uh, which means, which, which indicates sadness, because their rule was an abusive rule that did not bring joy and happiness to the people. Um, one other very interesting commentary from Abshleima Al Kavatz, the author of L'Chodedi, um, he says a fascinating thing. He says, Vayahi and Vahoya. When you look at Vayahi, Yahi in Hebrew grammar means it will be. Is, is the future tense. When you put a vav in front, it transforms it to past tense. Vayahi and it was. Yahi, Yahi Hashem. Yahi, let it be. It's the future. Vayahi means it was. In Vahoya, it's just the opposite. Hoya means it was. It's past tense. Vahoya means it will be. Vahoyoim shemayat ishmo. It will be if you will listen. It's all future tense. So it's interesting that you take... Um, a word which is future tense and transformed to through the vav, you trans, to the prefix of the vav, you transform it to past tense and vice versa. And he says the meaning of that is like this. When you take the future and turn it to the past, it's a sad indication. Because ultimately, in, in the world of goodness and happiness in Kedusha, which is the source of Simcha, this is the ultimate real source of Simcha, is when there's a connection with the world of Hashem in Kedusha. And there it's always new. You know, as it says in Chazal, Kachadoshim. Everything is new. There's no such thing as past. It is always looking forward to the future. The future is always exciting. And the future is always new. But when you have... Um, when, the, when, when the future becomes as good as the past... You know, when things pass pass us in time, we look back, even if they're good things that happen, and we're sad. We're sad because they already passed us. They're no longer there. They're longer for we, there's no longer for us to connect with with that beautiful past. So the idea that the future is turned into the past is a symbol, a, a symptom 
of sadness, of a sad event or a sad condition. Whereas when you take the past and say the, the past is is in the future, they take hoyo and make it in hoyo. It's like taking the Torah was given three and a half thousand years ago, but to us it's still very alive and present now. And so that's the concept of simcha, a very interesting way of analyzing. And the last thing I want to say is what it says in Chassidus, v'hoyo is vavke yutke. The yutke vavke is usually yutke and then vavke. In v'hoyo you have the vavke before the yutke, which indicates a union of simcha. Why? Because we know a yutke is yismechu hashamayim. The heavens are happy. Yismechu hashamayim is yutke. V'sagela aretz is Vovke, that's the earth. The earth rejoices. And what does Chassidus say about this? That, of course, there's uh, great things happening in the heavens, great divine revelations. There's Yud and there's K, there's Chachm and Bina. These are lofty things that are happening in the heavens. But the true joy that Hashem anticipates and, and is waiting for us to accomplish and to create for Him is when we can bring the godly revelation here down below, that the earth will rejoice. And that's the Vav and the K. The Vav and the K, as we know from Chassidus, is the two dimensions that uh, are more engaged in creating and um, fostering life in the lowly world. Whereas Yud K is the transcendent world, right? Like Chachma and Bina, the cerebral aspects of the spheres, which is like a person's intellect, which is more removed from reality. So that's why when Vahoya, the Vavke is before the Yudke, it's an indication that, that the Vavke, which is the dominant purpose in creation, it's not the higher world, it's the joy that we create here on earth through revealing godliness here on earth. When that is placed before the Yudke, that's a true Simcha because Hashem's ultimate plan in Dire Betachtenim had been accomplished. That's when it's Vahoya, Vayehi, Vav Yud doesn't have that combination and that's why it's a time of pain all right now um, <clears throat> talking about uh, uh, the judging the judges I just uh, tell a, a quick story um, they say that uh, the Ostrovtsa the great famous Ostrovtsa Rebbe he was passed away before World War II he was a Gon Eilam, one of the greatest scholars in Poland, and a Rebbe, and he fasted 40 years. Every day he fasted. You would say that um, great tzaddikim, when they eat, they connect to Hashem through food because they're such pure souls. But I am not such a pure soul. I'm not a tzaddik, so I need to break my body. So he was very into that fasting and breaking his body. It came to a point where he even started fasting on Shabbos. No, it's another discussion how he could do this halachically, but he's fasted for many, many years on Shabbos too. He would eat only in the, at night. And once there was a Jew in his town in Ostrovtsa that kept his business open on Shabbos, and the Ostrovtsa went to him and said, please close, the, you know, it's Shabbos, why don't you close your business? And the Jew said, he judged his judge, and said, Rabbi, you're also desecrating Shabbos, you're fasting on Shabbos. And the Ostrovtsa said to him back, well, yes, you're right. I am desecrating Shabbos. I'm fasting on Shabbos. But your behavior, others can learn from and will learn from. From my behavior, I'm not worried anybody's going to learn from me to start fasting on Shabbos. So that's the difference between me and you. 
Anyways, one, one last thing is the Eben Ezra. It's a very beautiful story that the Eben Ezra um, was approached by three by uh, two individuals. What happened is they were traveling together and one had three loaves of bread and the other guy had only two loaves of bread. And on the way, they met another traveler who didn't have any food with him. He had money, but he was willing to pay if they shared the meal with him. So they all put out all the bread for every, between all three of them and they all ate. At the end of the meal, the traveler who was very grateful for being invited to this meal, um, he gave them five coins as a payment for his share in the meal. Now the question became how to divide the money. The guy who had the two loaves said, listen, we should split it in half. Because ultimately, I don't know how much he ate from my bread, how much he ate from your bread. All I know is he wasn't very discriminating in saying, I'm going to eat three-fifths from this guy's bread and two-fifths from this guy's bread. He ate indiscriminately. So who knows? So we should really, to be fair, we should split the money in half. The guy with the three loaves of bread said, no, it's not fair. I contributed three loaves and you only contributed two loaves. So I should get three-fifths. That means I should get three coins and you should get two coins. They came to the Ebenezer, and the Ebenezer Paskent, a strange psak, he said, the one who had three loaves should get four coins, and the guy who had only two loaves should get one coin. And they both revolted and said, this doesn't make sense. I mean, this really doesn't make sense. Why should this guy, I mean, you're giving too much to this guy and too little to this guy. And the Ebenezer says, listen, you know, I know that you're not like the people in the time of the Shveta Sheftim, when they judge the judges, you just, you're just you willing to accept my psaac, but you just want to understand, so I'll explain it to you. And explain it to them in a, in a brilliant way. He said, the way to look at this situation is as follows. Everyone, we have to assume that all three of you ate exactly a third of the meal. That's a fair assumption. Right? On average, you all ate the same amount. And all five loaves disappeared. So we need to divide, um, to know the amount, how much the guest ate, we need to divide the loaves into three. So the way to do it best, mathematically, is to take each loaf and divide it into three. Three thirds times five is 15. 15 thirds is the total amount of bread that was given and placed on the table during that meal. Okay, so each one ate five thirds of of the of the meal because there's fifteen thirds altogether. There are three of you. That means each one consumed five thirds. So if that's the case, so the guy who brought two loaves of bread ate five thirds of 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 the bread. That means he only contributed a third to the common meal. To the others because he consumed five-thirds which is a whole loaf of bread and two-thirds so only one-third that he contributed to others the rest he ate himself the guy who brought three loaves of bread he ate five-thirds too that means he contributed how many four-thirds so the one who contributed four-thirds should be given four coins the one who gave only one-third should be given one coin so the, the, the split, the division, was perfectly correct and the most fair division possible. So this is a, a brilliant um, 
analysis, sometimes people don't appreciate the brilliance of the judges. Um, <clears throat> we'll leave it at that for now, and we'll record another episode later.